0: Welcome to another episode of Christ is the Cure. I'm your host, Paul, for this episode, and this is going to be part two of repentance. First part was historical theology, and now we are going to rightly understand repentance from a biblical standpoint, and we're going to take the opposite approach that was taken uh, by the early and medieval church on how wrongly they defined uh, repentance by the Latin term so, uh, just for you to know, I do not know Hebrew, and I, I'm a, a beginner student at Greek, so we are going to give Hebrew and Greek definitions in this in this episode, and I do not like to, to do that, especially when I don't know Hebrew, uh, but I used uh, sound sources, and it's just a couple of words, so it's going to be helpful for, for everyone, but we have to understand the Hebrew and Greek terms to, cor- to correctly grasp the meaning of, of repentance. So we're going to begin with an emotionally charged term, that would be the Hebrew word nacham, And I say emotionally charged because this term is used to express the emotional component of repentance in the Old Testament, and that would be to be sorrowful, to suffer grief and regret for one's actions. This term is often used for literal mourning mourning sorry of the dead lo- of, of a dead loved one in the Old Testament uh, but its usage isn't limited to mourning it also expresses sorrow over sin and we see that word used by Job in in the last chapter of his book and that will be verse 6 of chapter 42 and that's when he repents of his faulty understanding of God and criticizing him because of what he had been living lately. Job said, I repent in dust and ashes, and that's where the Hebrew word Nacham is used. Uh, Job was meaning to say, I repent in deep sorrow. So with that Hebrew term, we see the the, the necessary place of emotions and repentance. We are emotional creatures, they are a part of our being, so emotions are a strong impulse that can drive us to do things we normally would never think of doing. Without emotions, we won't be sufficiently affected in our will, and the thoughts might remain unchanged and untouched. So repentance without the correct emotion will almost always be lacking in honesty and durability. Our problem here is that we seldom have control over our emotions, so our dependence on God's grace when it comes to the emotional part of of repentance must be total. The other Hebrew term for repentance is Shub, that's S-H-U-B in the transliteration to English. And the meaning here is more in line to what we understand theologically by repentance. Shub means to return or to turn. According to Hebrew scholars, it's a rich term that denotes both the act of turning from evil and that of turning to the good. It's about forsaking wickedness and pursuing good. It involves hating one's own sin while at the same time striving to obey the Lord. In order to return to God, one must turn from his or or her sin, since God and sin are mutually exclusive. Repentance is not just about leaving something behind, it's also about embracing something new. And that new can only be God. That will be the, the aspect of faith. We can see this in... Uh, we we can notice this reality in many texts of the Old Testament, like Ezekiel 18.21, which says, But if a wicked person turns away from all his sin that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Daniel 9.13 also has a similar take, and it reads, As it is written in the Law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. So we see both realities here, both uh, forsaking and embracing. and We also see that in Hosea uh, 3.5 and chapter 5, verse 4. And that one reads, respectively, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. That of course, uh, just to make a small interruption there on the, on the biblical text, David was already dead by the time Hosea wrote this. So by David their king, uh, Hosea here meant the messianic king that would come after David from the line of David. So David their king, and they shall come in the fear, in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days, and Hosea five four. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. All the prophets called Israel to turn from wicked ways and to amend their ways by seeking God. That's that's true both in the major and minor prophets. This had to be a heartfelt repentance. The knowledge that the creator and sustainer of our lives has been personally offended by us must touch our hearts. We have trespassed somewhere that God forbade us to ever set foot in. And he forbade us for our own good. He set a limit and told us, like he told the waters of the ocean, thus far shall you come and no farther. But unlike the seas, we disobeyed. We were the only part of the creation that disobeyed God. So, uh, before moving to the New Testament, we should also point out that what followed repentance in Old Testament legals in, in the legal system of the Old Testament was very different from what, from what is expected in New Testament times. A reformation not only of attitude and holiness was required, but also a fulfillment of the system of atonement that was proper to the Old Covenant. Well we cannot get in there now. That would take way too much time, although it is a fascinating subject to study. So now let's spend uh, some time in the New Testament's definition of repentance. We're going to start in the same line which, uh, which we saw with the Hebrew terms. The Greek word metamelomai, would, that would be a parallel to the Hebrew nacham. Uh, that's, for example, used in Matthew 21 and 27 to describe regret and remorse for one's own sin. And that, of course, involves deep emotions. And much like the Hebrew term to denote the action of repentance, which would be shub, Greek has a similar term to describe the, this change of life and attitude, and that would be the Greek term uh, epistrepho. This term describes how the individual who is repentant has a change of direction, a turning of his from his or her old life onto the new one in Christ. And of course, the most famous Greek term for repentance is the noun metanoia, from the verb, I mean the verb of form being metanoio. Uh, this is the one that means to change one's mind. And the first thing to note here is that a change of mind requires recognition of that state of mind. And by that I mean that the mind, uh, the mind that is set on the flesh, set on sin, there has to be recognition of that. A change of attitude towards sin is needed. When God's judgment on the person is brought to light and it looms as close as a heartbeat away, a change of mind necessarily has to follow, if the repentance is genuine and true. The mind, um, that is the center of the being, will shift from the direction it was heading toward and now strive after God, not in the attempt to win or achieve something required for salvation, but in a state of awe and thankfulness that drives the person to live for that newfound love. Everything in the person is changed with genuine repentance. The thoughts are renewed. What occupied our minds before repentance will either immediately or progressively fade away. I should say mostly progressively. Some Very few things leave immediately. M- most of them progressively fade away. Uh, And of course, with that, new thoughts will flood our minds. Sorry, that's my phone. Um, These thoughts, fueled by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, will now lead to new emotions, which in tandem with the new thoughts will propel the will to what God expects. Not only the intellect is changed, that would only result in dead orthodoxy, and we don't want that. Uh, Not only emotions are changed, and that will lead to mindless emotionalism that would soon die away. Uh, That's very common in the charismatic movement, for example. And not only the will is changed from isolation of the others, and that will lead to legalism. Rather, the whole being is changed. Thoughts, emotions, and the will. Uh, Louis Burkhoff put it this way, and I quote, While maintaining that the word denotes primarily a change of mind, we should not lose sight of the fact that its meaning is not limited to the intellectual, theoretical consciousness, but also includes the moral consciousness, the conscience. Both the mind and the conscience are defiled, and when a person's mind is changed, he not only receives new knowledge, but the direction of his conscious life, its moral quality, is also changed. Close quote. If we could define biblical repentance in a nutshell, it would be this definition from John MacArthur's Systematic Theology, uh, which is called Biblical Doctrine, by the way, titled Biblical Doctrine. And I quote, True biblical repentance is also a redirection of the human will, a purposeful decision to forsake all unrighteousness and pursue righteousness instead. Thus, genuine repentance involves the mind, the heart, and the will. Close quote. By heart there, he means emotions, by the way. So that's where we're going to camp now for a while and we're going to finish with a breakdown of those three aspects and then I'm going to give you five, uh, five things that God expects from a repentant heart. So this episode is going to be shorter than the previous one. Intellectually, as we have seen, repentance begins with the personal recognition of sin and the wicked human nature that is a force behind our sinful actions. An intellectual understanding of repentance will lead the person to repeat after David in Psalm 51. Against you, you only, have I sinned and have done what is evil in your eyes. Naturally, the need for God's grace and forgiveness will follow. Think about a time that you have sinned against someone you loved dearly. How much did that grieve you? What about deeply, deeply disappointing someone you love? It's a painful experience, isn't it? So now try to imagine that same grief but as the result of sinning against the one who formed you in your mother's womb and has kept you alive and well for all these years, all the while uh, you were being rebellious and hateful towards him. So this immediately leads to the emotional area, of course, and as we saw earlier, genuine repentance is marked by grief and sorrowful remorse. The rich young ruler, for example, felt sorrow and remorse, and so did Judas Iscariot. But such a sorrow, such is a sorrow that leads to death. It's, it's a sorrow fo- that's focused on the self and not on Christ nor his work. This sorrow is born out of the reality that we have offended the most precious being in existence, in existence. and I mean by that true sorrow, true repentance and true remorse, it's not born out of fear of the consequences, although it can include that, nor is it born out of, a self, out of the fear of self-preservation. For example, if you get caught selling drugs, the fear that might spring up in you will not necessarily lead you to repentance from that action. And at last, um, the will. And I'll briefly say this. There is no chronological order established in the Bible for repentance to happen. And I say that this for the Christians that are listening, Uh, the will won't always be accompanied by emotions. And remember this, when, when it is devoid of emotions, we must always act in obedience. The works themselves, out of obedience to God, with that intention, even though you don't want to do it in your emotions or probably your thoughts, but the works themselves, out of obedience, will at times end up producing the correct emotion to go with them because you will connect them with that emotion that is lacking and you know that's lacking. But I'm I'm, I'm sure, I'm positive that God will fulfill that emotion when, when it's born out of obedience. Countless times in the New Testament, we are told to lay off the old man and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I always remember... Uh, Augustine's um, conversion, with with that verse from Romans 14. um, Which tells us to put on the new man, man to put on Jesus Christ. And give no uh, indulgence to the flesh. Uh, And that new man, of course, has been made anew by God. We are never left simply with the lay off the old here. The Bible doesn't give room for that. If we only do that, then we will surely and quickly catch new habits that may not be godly. So we must not only put off, but also put on. Put off old attitudes, old thoughts, old emotions, old habits, and replace them with the new ones. So if you used to spend your time playing video games for five hours a day, reduce that to one or two and spend the rest, the rest of the time helping a, a neighbor, loving your family, discipling someone, reading the Bible or a, a good book on theology, praying for your church, asking if anyone needs help in your church. Uh, If you used to steal, work for a living. The Apostle Paul literally says that. If you used to watch hours of unhealthy or vain videos on YouTube, watch a sound biblical documentary instead, or a sermon. If you used to arrive to your house and then sulk in your room to watch Netflix, call a brother from church and edify one another instead. That change of attitude rises from... And I hope I don't sound masochistic by saying this. That rises from uh, despising the self and despising one's own lack of of righteousness before God. As this realization takes place, the turning from oneself takes place. And since God is being revealed in both His judgment and His grace, and the will is being renewed, the repentant person will want nothing more than God. His forgiveness, communion with Him. And also, I should say before we go to the five uh, things that God expects from a Christian, from a a repentant heart, is that repentance is not optional, as the anti lordship salvation people would have it. Repentance is a necessary component of salvation. So I, I should ask everyone have you experienced this? And I know about despair. Personally, so I do not want anyone listening to this to to fall into despair. Don't expect a perfect repentance. That will never happen. You just have to answer this one question Does your life show a repentant attitude? Or is your life's direction marked by the narrow way that leads to life? If you struggle and fight against temptations that you know would turn you away from Christ, don't despair people who don't know repentance don't struggle with competing desires inside their in their hearts, in their minds they simply give in so if if there is a struggle in your life, take heart so now we will finish up with uh, the kind of heart that God expects and that we must strive forwards to so we will see five things that should compose uh, the repentant heart or the Christian heart This part of the episode is based on chapter 3 of the book Minding the Heart by Robert Saucy. Totally recommend that book. So the first one is a heart of integrity. The Old and New Testaments repeatedly speak of the fallen human heart in very marked and strong ways. We see this in literally all the major prophets, especially in Jeremiah. The Psalms and Proverbs are also full of depictions of the fallen heart. But in contrast, we also see something that would shock most Reformed people if given a second glance. And what I'm talking about is the integrity of one's heart. Psalms 25, 78, and 101, just to mention a few, show David arguing and advocating from the integrity of his heart. And the Hebrew word here used for integrity also means completeness or perfection. It's more akin to sincerity of heart than to, for example, sinless perfection, and it also signifies a single purpose in the heart. Also, uh, genuineness, truthfulness, and uprightness. That is what is meant regarding Job when he said, uh, "When he said to be perfect, it does not mean that he was sinless as Jesus is, but that he was sincere and genuine. He was aware of his sinfulness, and and he was keenly." Uh, aware when it came to temptations. Even so, he did fall into temptation due to the despair and heavy grief that he was, he is reported to have had in the book that carries his name. A heart of integrity is a heart that is united in its pursuit of God, and such can only be a repentant heart. And with that, we move to uh, the point that is about... Um, the wholeness of the heart, or completeness. The scriptures describe this heart as wholly devoted, blameless, and wholehearted, and the root here is found in the Hebrew word for peace. It refers to a full and complete heart, a heart that enters into wholeness and unity. Uh, that's in opposition and in contrast to an undivided, um, I mean, to a divided heart. This heart is undivided and harmonious, its a heart that works together in its many aspects and areas towards a deeper relationship with God. The greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, and he also promises that he will let himself be found when he is sought with all our heart. David said, Unite my heart to fear your name. And we all know that our hearts have not yet been brought into holy unity in seeking after God although they, w- they will be uh, when we enter eternity. Our hearts are often distracted and wayward. It's also important to note here that fear of God implies not only reverential fear, but also a fear that, acts, that actively compels us to honor God and glorify Him in our lives. This undivided heart is a heart that fully seeks in, in all the areas of life, to honor God. That's that's what it me- it's meant with an undivided heart. Uh, I, I could give an example from, from daily life. Um, very common to, to hear, you know. Um, well, I have a secular job. There's no such thing as a secular job if you think about it. A job at work is given by God as a blessing. And that's before the fall even. So even in, in, in your job, if, if you deem it a secular, if, if it's not related to a ministry, it is a ministry in itself. You can't just divide your your work, your job, from your life as a Christian. That would mean uh, that would be a good example of an, of a divided heart. If you do your job one way, if you behave one way at your, at your workplace and then another way at church, that would be a divided heart that's not fully after God, or seeking God. The next definition is that of an upright heart, and that's completely antithetical to the fallen heart, which is perverse and crooked in its intentions and ways. An upright heart is a heart which produces a straightforward conduct, an honest conduct. When it comes to life, there are two ways. There's a crooked way, which leads to darkness, or the right way, which leads to light. Repentance or the lack of it, or we could say the state of the heart, determines which way we will take. The upright heart does not turn either to the right or to the left. It remains straightforward. An upright heart is by no means sinless, but it rejoices in cleansing and forgiveness, as we see of David in Psalm 51. Steadfastness here goes perfectly paired with this aspect of the heart. The qualities of an upright heart are to be constant, and this will become manifest and be tested a di- on a daily basis. In Nehemiah 9, verse 8, we read that God found Abraham's heart to be faithful. And that's in contrast to Israel, uh, after him who, whose heart was not steadfast, as Psalm 78, verse 8 says. The repentant heart is one that trusts God steadfastly through good and evil. Psalm 112, verses 7 and 8 reads, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. This kind of heart that turns away from itself and towards God is now centered on the one who is sovereign and powerful over everything. The one who is intimately concerned for you and I the one who gave what is most precious to him so that he could bring us back to himself. One of the main differences between an unregenerate and regenerate heart is the faculty of hearing. A fallen and sinful heart is hard towards God. It does not hear, and the words of life that it receives just bounce off. But the regenerate heart is receptive to the voice of God, and we are to open our hearts to him and to his word, so that the heart is filled and transformed, as God takes room and fills our heart, our hearts with himself, while at the same time ridding it of our old selves and the sinful passions that used to guide our lives. So our final point here is the most Christ-like and important priority of the Christian's life, and that is humility. And not just humility, but a broken kind of humility. The life Jesus lived on earth was the epitome of humility. The one time He defined his, his, his own heart was with these words, Come to me, all, you, all who labor and are, are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus was and remains, now and forever, lowly in heart. Humility was demonstrated in His life through lowliness and submissiveness to the Father. And as you know from listening to this podcast, Philippians 2 was not written primarily for Christological clarity, but as an example in Christ of humility. And you of course know the text I'm talking about. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is true humility. So the goal of life and whole satisfaction will be found when the heart finds its place of humility and lowliness and awe before God. This kind of heart, the repentant heart, is the one that finds rest in Christ. This is the heart that has been softened by God and his word. The unrepentant heart, by contrast, is, as we said, stony and callous, the outward piety and religiosity that will, it will most of the times, fool the heart into believing that it has been made new, but its trust is in the outward works and not anchored to Christ as the regenerated heart is. So that would be all for today's episode. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that was satisfying, and and I hope that I gave a clear explanation of what uh, biblical repentance is and what it is not. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Christ is the Cure. Uh, support this wonderful ministry, and yep, that will be it. God bless you. Make your plans now to join us for the G3 National Conference, September 30th through October 2nd as we'll gather for Christian fellowship and the worship of God through song and the preached word. Our theme for the 2021 conference will be centered on biblical Christology. You can find registration details at g3men.org. Get 15% off by mentioning code G3JT. That's G3JT.